Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to uh, today's last presentation titled Occipital Neuralgia. My head's stuck in a waffle iron and I can't get it out. Now all of a sudden I'm hungry for dinner. Um, this afternoon's speaker is Dr. Gary Jay, clinical professor in the Department of Neurology at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I will turn it over to you. Thank you very much. And for those that ask, no, I don't think of these titles. Basically, somebody high up sends me a bunch of titles and says, use them. Hey, what can I do? All right, so we're going to talk about occipital neuralgia. How many people here treat occipital neuralgia? Okay, let me ask a different question. How many people here inject the occipital nerve? Nobody. One. All right, well, we're going to talk about that. So, occipital neuralgia, as we'll talk about, is paroxysmal, brief, lancinating, shock-like pain that can last seconds to minutes, okay? By definition, there's no objective neurological findings whatsoever. Attacks can be provoked by non-painful stimulation, allodynia, of trigger points or trigger zones. Refractory period typically follows the pain, the occipital pain. However, it gets shorter and shorter as the disease progresses. See, occipital neuralgia, or ON, is also called C2 neuralgia. Again, paroxysmal shooting or stabbing pain in the dermatomes of the greater occipital nerve or the nervous occipitalis major or the lesser, which is the nervous occipitalis minor. And how many of you know that there's actually a third occipital nerve? We'll talk about it. The pain originates in the suboccipital area of the neck and spreads throughout the vertex. And I'll show you a slide that gives you the dermatomes. The pain can be associated with hyposthesia or dysesthesia, typically interictally. The most common trigger is compression on the greater occipital nerve or the lesser occipital nerve, with the greater occipital nerve more commonly involved. This can instigate headache in the occipital region. So anybody that's a headache specialist may tend to see this, but it is rare. It's typically, again, paroxysmal, lancinating, electrical-like. It can be accompanied by decreased sensation or dysesthesias, as we said. So the anatomy is important because you've got to know what you're doing when you're treating this. The medial branches of the dorsal primary rami of the cervical nerve root, C2, C3, and C4, and on occasion, C5, is involved supplying sensation to the posterior neck. The greater occipital nerve originates from C2. The lesser occipital nerve originates from C2 and C3 in some cases. And the third occipital nerve is from C3. The greater occipital nerve typically goes downward from C2. It goes lateral, makes a bend along the inferior oblique muscle, and is covered by the splenius capitis muscle and the longissimus and the semispinalis muscular. 
the greater occipital nerve then turns upward and it pierces the semispinalis capitis. And it pierces it in a region where before it turns supralaterally and it merges in the scalp. This is the occipital protuberance. Right in the middle here is called the inion. That's where you're aiming for, for most part. So basically, the greater occipital nerve, as I said, turns superior laterally to emerge into the scalp, okay, not covered with muscle once it goes above the occipital protuberance, which you can feel. Okay. Here is, look over here. Here is the greater occipital nerve. This is where you see it. The lesser occipital nerve. And here you'll see third occipital nerve. Now, the diagnosis per the ICDH3 beta, which won't become permanent until the beginning of next year, is unilateral or bilateral pain that fulfills criteria B through F. Pain is located in the distribution of the greater, lesser, or third occipital nerve, and the pain has two of the following characteristics. Okay, number one, it's recurring in paroxysmal attacks that last from several seconds to minutes. It has severe intensity, and it is shooting, stabbing, or sharp in quality. The pain is associated with both of the next two. Dysesthesias or allodynia during innocuous stimulation of the scalp or hair or both of the following, tenderness over the affected nerve branches and trigger points in the emergence of the greater occipital nerve into the area of the distribution of C2. Pain is eased temporarily by local anesthetic blockade, but there's a problem with that, which we'll talk about. <clears throat> the absolute pathophysiology, what causes occipital neuralgia, is not known, okay? We have several hypotheses, the first being that it's an injury to C2, C3 nerve roots or occipital nerves secondary to chronic instability or nerve entrapment, trauma or inflammation. I have one patient who was bending to pick, down to pick something up, stood up, whacked the back of her head, the occipital region, on the back of this marble table, and she's had occipital neuralgia ever since. Some question the presence of whether or not there's vascular compression of the nerve, the occipital nerve, by the occipital artery, which you can actually palpate, and you need to palpate before you do an injection. The best hypothesis, the one I favor anyway, is that occipital neuralgia is secondary to chronic entrapment of the occipital nerves by the posterior neck and scalp muscles. Remember, the number of nerves that the greater occipital nerve goes through, excuse me, the number of muscles that the greater occipital nerve goes through is four to six. So it's not unusual. There's no convincing evidence to support the concept of irritation of the occipital nerve, nor is there evidence from surgery to uh, support entrapment to the occipital nerve as the etiology. However, the surgical patient, the cervical pa surgical papers, excuse me, aren't very well controlled. Typically, 
Occipital neuralgia develops spontaneously. In occipital neuralgia, you can have irritation of the greater and or the lesser occipital nerve by chronically contracted muscles and or spondylosis of the upper cervical spine, which is not uncommon. The problem is compression from intra or extracranial vessels, giant cell arteritis, callus formation, post-vertebral fractures, schwannomas, and other masses are rare but do cause occipital neuralgia. Next. Here is a list. Here you see vascular causes, neurogenic, osteogenic. This is from Chow and Jiang, 2017, uh, 2016. Pardon me. Now, epidemiologically, it's rarely seen by us headache specialists. The actual incidence and prevalence is totally unknown. There is a lack of consensus regarding the definition and diagnostic criteria, and the diagnosis can be given arbitrarily to any pain in the occipital region, which unfortunately happens all too frequently. Whiplash injuries secondary to a slip and fall or motor vehicle accident can be risk factors for occipital neuralgia. Okay. Dutch study showed a low incidence of 3.2 patients with ON per 100,000 patients. That is a low incidence. Indeed, female dominance was found, but it was not statistically significant. There's no time or seasonal variation to this, as you would see with cluster headache, for instance. So clinical aspects, and we're going to go through all the different treatments that you can possibly do for occipital neuralgia. Patients with ON, we've talked about this. There can be occipital pain dull in nature between or interictally between a painful jolt or paroxysm, as we discussed. And those interictal periods get shorter and shorter and shorter. On exam, one can find tenderness along the course. And the way to do that is look for a Tinel sign. The best way to do that basically is to make a fist, start at C7 and lightly hit the areas of the cervical spine. And basically, if you develop an electrical shock when you hit the occipital region, C2, you've got it. On neurological examination, otherwise, it's entirely normal. The neurological examination, as I said, if, if abnormal, indicates that there's something much more than occipital neuralgia going on. ICD-3 criteria which I read you earlier, requires being able to determine the difference between occipital neuralgia and the occipital referral of pain. This can be tricky. You can get a, a referral of pain from the atlantoaxial or the upper zygopophyseal joints, from tender myofascial trigger points in the neck muscles and or their insertions. ON should be considered when it's typical clinical features are present. The clinician can confirm the diagnosis when the pain is transiently relieved by local occipital anesthetic block. The problem is that they may, that may happen, but it is not diagnostic. Tenderness can be detected by palpation along the course of the greater occipital nerve over the occipital protrusion, which I showed you, and or the lesser occipital nerve, which goes three centimeters superior medially to the tip of the mastoid process to the inion right here, 
and you'd be right in the middle, above the occipital protuberance. Light pressure can invoke tingling or percussion. That's Tinell's sign. Then there's the pillow sign, when a patient would lie on a pillow and hyperextend or rotate their neck, and this will cause their typical OM pain. MRI is the most important tool in the diagnosis of OM as it enables visualization of both the cervical and the occipital soft tissues. Why is that important? Because differential diagnosis is very large. A plain x-ray can be nice. A CT scan can also show neoplastic or osseous type changes, degenerative changes. But here's part of your differential diagnosis. I'm not going to read it to you. You can see it's got a number of things. And this is just slide one. Slide two, you've got to differentiate ON from referred occipital pain arising from these structures. It can also be secondary to meningiomas, schwannomas, arteriovenous fistulas, vascular compression, multiple myeloma, myelitis. Bottom line is there's enough here to make neuroimaging very important. Tumors, infections, and congenital anomalies, such as Arnold Chiari malformation, you must consider. ON can be diagnosed and has been by migraine or as migraine, cluster headache, tension type headache, and even hemicrania continua. Distinguishing ON from referred pain from the atlantoaxial or upper zygopophyseal joints for, or from trigger points in neck muscles is important to do. Cervicogenic headache may be an initiator if you believe that there is such a thing as cervicogenic headache. The evaluation, when you see the patient and you're going to evaluate that patient, the upper cervical spine and the posterior fossa is very important. Examination, you need to do a Tinell sign. Without a Tinell sign, you don't know what's going on. You need to do the pillow sign. And if there's any issues, particularly if it's the first diagnosis, you would, I would recommend doing an MRI of the, of the brain and the neck. There are no clear guidelines, however, regarding getting neuroimaging studies. Okay, that's entirely up to you, but the differential diagnosis is so large, it would pay you to do so. Continuous, rather than intermittent pain, it speaks of the absence of impaired sensation and would indicate that the pain is referred from a structure in the cervical region, part of the differential diagnosis. It's not from the occipital nerves. So let's talk about treatment. First thing you do, conservative treatment. Um, one way of looking at it conservatively, moist heat, cold, Medication for muscle spasms, skeletal muscle relaxants. These are things, particularly if it's post-traumatic in origin, that you may want to consider. Other medications that you'd want to use are friends, the TCAs, the tricyclic antidepressants. SSRIs, I don't find very helpful. SNRIs are very helpful, as are ACMs, particularly carbamazepine and oxcarbazepine. Oxcarbazepine, or trileptal, has a lot fewer side effects. There are no hematological side effects. Oxcarbazepine is a prodrug for Tegretol. So when you get the Tegretol, you're not worried about anemia or aplastic anemia or anything like that. Opioids, 
I would not use for a spontaneous electrical-like pain. NSAIDs and acetaminophen have only transient effectiveness, and other types of drugs may be beneficial. So then we have interventional treatment. Okay, There's different types. Local occipital nerve block, typically with a mixture of a lidocaine or bupivacaine, a local anesthetic, and a glucocorticoid is what the standard of care is. It's the treatment of choice in clinicians who are experienced with it, and I'll give you some pictures here. It can be diagnostic as well as therapeutic if you keep bounds in mind, which we'll talk about. Local anesthetic agent with and without steroid can be used, and so can onobotulinum toxin A, which is something that I would use for this rather, rather rarely. Pulsed radiofrequency treatment, basically it reduces pain, but what happens to the nerve? The nerve grows back because it's a peripheral nerve and the nerve is pissed, so you have increased pain. Now here is a picture. Uh, this is the third occipital nerve, the greater and the lesser occipital nerve. Here's the muscles that involve the greater and lesser occipital nerve. There's another picture of the musculature that covers. You can see here, this is the occipital protuberance, and you can see where the greater occipital nerve escapes from the muscle and right at the occipital protuberance goes right under the skin. Here's just another picture of it. Here you see two different things that are important. The first is electrical. This is something we will talk about in a minute, which is electrical stimulation. But then there's two ways that you can inject the patient, distal or proximal, and we'll talk about it. The distal approach is right where you see it. Okay? I mean, basically, here's the distal. Here's proximal, okay? Here's the inion. Which anesthetic would you want to use? I typically use 1% lidocaine without epinephrine. If I'm going to use a steroid, I will use um, methylprednisolone between 40 and 80 milligrams, okay? But here's one of the points. I will not do this more than three times for a patient. If they become intractable, and during that three-month period that you're injecting them, um, medications such as oxycarbazepine should start to work. I saw a patient who was being seen for 39 months in the resident clinic, the resident neurology clinic, and this gentleman had 39 monthly occipital nerve blocks. So when I tried to do one, guess what I found? a whole bunch of scar tissue. There was no way I could put a 30-gauge half-inch needle in there and have what I wanted to inject get to the nerve itself. So I recommended a stimulator for this gentleman, and we're still dickering between the insurance company. And he's still going back to the resident clinic for more injections and wonders why they're not helping him. After a nerve block, if it's done correctly, the pain will promptly be relieved, and this can last for weeks or months. But again, the longer a patient has occipital neuralgia, the shorter the period of time 
you're going to see the pain last. Procedure can be repeated when the pain recurs. Again, if you can wait between two and three months, if that's how long the occipital nerve block gives you, that's a wonderful thing. But to give it monthly like that is just inappropriate. The procedure is safe with few complications as long as you can palpate the occipital nerve and you know, excuse me, the occipital artery. So you know to avoid that region with your needle. By definition, the diagnosis is not occipital neuralgia if the block does not resolve the pain. However, after an acute occipital neuralgia secondary to traumatic cervical strain sprain, you might want to do a block and then use immobilization with a cervical collar for two or three weeks. Then you could do neurolysis. Okay. Entrapment of the greater occipital nerve peripherally is a major pathophysiology, as we discussed, for occipital neuralgia. There are five potential sources of such entrapment. C2 nerve root, which is relatively rare. The inferior oblique muscle, which is also relatively rare. Where your money is, is within the semispinalis capitis muscle, within the trapezius muscle and the aponeurotic tension, and that's typically where I put my money. And lastly, the angiolymphatics. Okay. Other than neurolysis, you want to consider sectioning the inferior oblique muscle when the pain is secondary to flexion of the cervical spine. Here is a, another list, again taken from Choi and Gian. 2016, this is your onobotulinum toxin A, here's pulsed radiofrequency, and here is nerve neurolysis. So, I prefer neurostimulation. Basically, you have subcutaneous insertion of electrodes in the C12 region uh, of the posterior cervical spine. Convergence of the afferents of C1 through 3 work all these nerves with the trigeminal afferents, and they, that's a cause of cervicogenic headache, okay, if you believe in that, from activation of these nerves. And the nice thing is ONS stimulation is totally reversible. Here's a picture of the stimulator. And before you ever put in a stimulator, you want to do a percutaneous trial. You never put in a stimulator okay, surgically, until you've done a percutaneous trial. That doesn't just go for this, that goes for anything. Because here's the problems that you can get with a uh, occipital nerve stimulator, okay? And this would work for a spinal cord stimulation, too. You have significant issues. 30% of implantations will have problems with lead migration. You'll put it in, and the patient will move, and the lead will shift. Post-surgical infection, not infrequent. Fracture and dislocation of the lead that you placed, and implantation-related allergic reactions. So these are the four things that can create up to 30% of issues. And here looks at occipital nerve stimulation. Again, Chow and Gian from last year. Now, surgical treatment, the risks of destructive surgical procedures, development of painful neuromas, not a good thing. Development of causalgia, I've seen that once. 
after uh, surgery for occipital neuralgia. That is not pretty. And worse is intractable neuropathic pain. Basically, the patient had um, anesthesia dolorosa. That was not pretty. Because as you all know, there's very little you can do for anesthesia dolorosa. So you can also do a C2 ganglionotomy, a C2 ganglionectomy, a C2-C3 rhizotomy, a C2-C3 decompression, and a distal neurectomy. And here's, again, a chart with the surgical methodology. So our last slide. Basically, you start by making the diagnosis. You want to start by doing a block to make sure that it's a real diagnosis. And lastly, you look at what else you can do. You try other things, such as NSAIDs, such as, uh, if it's acute, skeletal muscle relaxants. Then here, you can look at physical therapy, biofeedback, and other things here, if you, of course, can get insurance to pay for them. And then over here, you have the sensory difficulties, the sensory problems, injecting botulinum toxin, pulsed radio frequency, and down here you're at stimulation and neurosurgical procedures. I try to prevent, except for stimulation, neurostimulator, I try to prevent my patients from getting any type of neurosurgical procedure because I'd say 80% of the time they go bad. So, are there any questions? I'm sorry, can, uh, can you stand up, please? Wait, hold on one second. I think Dr. Glick is getting a mic that way because they're recording this and that'll make life easy. David, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Besides the mic, question. Thank you. Um, my physicians do occipital nerve um, stimulators in our area, and we have we get referrals from neurology um, from neurosurgeons to do them. We have a problem where they'll pay for the trial, but they won't pay for the um, implant. Right. Do you have the same issues, and what do you do to help with that? <laughs> Unfortunately, or fortunately, I work in a university, so they deal with it. Okay, I don't talk to insurance companies. I don't deal with any of that stuff. What I used to do when I had my own clinic for 25 years was send them to a interventional anesthesiologist if they did, um, you know, if they did the stimulators, and basically they'd have to deal with the insurance. Okay. Okay. We, we it's not answering your question, and I'm sorry, but it's one thing about working in in academia. Okay, I don't have to worry about that. I just have to see all the patients that they send me. Dave, did you have a question? Yes, I do, actually. Um, my question is, what about the idea of off-label application, obviously, for topical NSAIDs? Because um, I deal with a lot of musculoskeletal problems in the neck, and typically that's often a side effect. And we find that topical, diclofenic, and various things like that help tide it over. And on some bad cases, too, we've also found that top, some compounded topical medications with any things from anti-epileptics and other things also could that be a potential use, at least for conservative therapy? What I recommend to patients, if I find that there is a positive tenels and it's really positive, mm -hmm. is I have them alternate 
with 5% lidocaine gel and Voltaren gel. My favorite. Okay? So that's what I do for that. And also, that's a really good thing to do for your trigeminal neuralgia patients. If they have a trigger zone, you have them every 12 hours use for first time lidocaine, 5 milligrams. And by the way, even though it says that it's uh, behind the counter, it's not. You have to find it in the hemorrhoid section of the pharmacy. Okay? And once they find it, then they can go get their Voltaren gel. And every six hours, they'll put on either the lidocaine on the trigeminal nerve zone, the trigger zone, and then six hours later, Voltaren, six hours later, lidocaine, six hours later, Voltaren. Would it be appropriate sometimes for an initial dose to maybe go a little heavier, like maybe two to four for the first couple times and then to six? You can. It yeah. all depends on the patient, okay? Because particularly with um, trigeminal neuralgia, Dave, patients, as you, as you probably see, patients will come in. If they're women, as most of them are, they'll have makeup on one side of their face. Men will be shaved on one side of their face. Oh, they just grow a beard. <laughs> it gets yeah, directly. exactly. So a lot of patients are afraid to touch the trigger zone. So that's why I don't have them really double down on it. Because there really is nothing that's going to cause immediate, you know, oh, I'm going to kill that trigger zone immediately. Doctor, what do you think? Dr. B? Wait, one second. You're making me do the exercise. No, I, I put, we put the gel on with a Q-tip. Sometimes we do it in the office because the lidocaine, excuse me, the yeah. xylocaine, lidocaine gel is there uh, for water-soluble, and we put it on with a Q-tip to allay the fears of the patient. Right. And I go very gently. I tell them, I don't want you to put it on your fingers. Use a Q-tip and be soft and put it on. We do the same thing with the gel and alternating it. They're, they're satisfied with it. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Where are Dave, oh. in front of you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, just a quick question. You mentioned the residency clinic that was uh, doing an injection one every month and it developed scar tissue. Were you saying you would do one like Q3 months and then you could do that schedule well, indefinitely? I would give a patient no more than three injections. And I said that if the first injection would be good for three months, great. There's no reason to do another injection until the pain comes back. And then on the second time I see them, after three months, if that's what works for the patient, do it again, see how long it lasts for the patient. But I don't do it more than three times, okay, whether it's nine months, because the reason for doing that is to give the medications time to work, carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, and those things, okay? Any other questions? If not, I thank you all for staying late on this, on this Friday. Thank you.